So as I said, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together. And so the context of what's happening in Acts might be just a little bit hazy for you. We're also new into the series. So if I'm repeating things in terms of its introduction, um, it's always helpful to, to solidify that in our minds. So remembering that Acts, uh, this book of Acts, does tell the story of the first Christians and the apostles taking the ministry of Christian witness into a pagan and hostile world. That's the, that's the essential basis of the book of Acts. It does begin with ministry to Jerusalem and to Jews, God's historic um, people. But it, it quickly unfolded and expanded into a ministry into the, the pagan, uh, irreligious, I shouldn't say irreligious, but totally unfamiliar with God and the Ten Commandments or anything to do with God's historic work on the earth. So that's sort of the storyline of Acts, that Jews and Gentiles heard the mysteries of God proclaimed. So first, the apostles and Christians faced the religious establishment in Israel. This was the, this was the starting place for Christian ministry. The Bible tells us over and over again that Jesus came first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. This has nothing to do with favoritism, but it has everything to do with faithfulness in that God, who had set apart the Jews for himself, promised that they would be sent to Messiah. And he fulfilled his promise by sending Christ. So he was faithful to fulfill his promise to Israel. And through Israel's rejection, the gospel was then turned on the nations. Now again, this was not a backup plan for God. The whole Old Testament, especially the Psalms, speak of the nations streaming to God that the nations would come to Mount Zion. And so God's mission has always been a global mission. In the book of Acts, we see that in a very practical way. It began with the Jews, but it also expanded to non-Jewish nations and peoples all around. So as they're doing this, and as I said, they're facing the religious establishment. And they meet opposition. That's what we found two weeks ago. The first real opposition to the gospel. And it's really nothing compared to what they would face later, but it's definitely the first sign of opposition. And I think one of the things that I wanted to stress was that as a church, as we continue to plant Evergreen Chapel, as we continue to seek to be faithful to the mission of God through the Great Commission... The more deeply we are committed to that, to those around us, I think the more pronounced opposition will become. And so I, I, don't, I think the church that never sticks its neck out will very seldom face opposition, if I can put it in more frank terms. And so as a church, we, we want to strive to become more committed to the mission that was handed to us through the apostles, the Great Commission. And so, and so we're going to study and, and, and take on, as it were, that mantle and that burden that, that was first uh, borne by these faithful men and, and comes to us today. I also want to stress that opposition is not failure. Opposition is not failure. It is not the result of a failed witness. When you are met with opposition as a Christian or resistance, it's not because you did not do a good job. It's probably because you are doing a good job. It's because you are being faithful. And so opposition does not equal failure, but it almost always accompanies success or response. We saw that 3,000 
um, came to know Christ through Peter's sermon. And in fact, before this opposition even really took hold, the number came to about 5,000. So in these first couple weeks, you have 5,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and then you have opposition stick its head out. Because the reality is that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And, and those kingdoms do not get along. They do not occupy the same space. We saw that two weeks ago as well. They do not share the platform. And so where the kingdom of light is advancing, the kingdom of darkness will lash out. Satan uses, Ephesians tells us, he works in the sons of disobedience. So when Satan sees people turning to God, he responds. He responds with opposition. And so this morning, we're finding out how the church responds to opposition. What do we do when we face opposition? What do we do when it gets hard? What do we do when we, are, when we come up against resistance and even persecution? Response to opposition only really matters if we have a vision for the bigger picture. Otherwise, we shouldn't really give it much thought, or possibly we should even just quit when things get hard. We can just say, well, we tried. But because these apostles had the big picture in mind, they come up with a response. They, they go back and they think on it. And there, there is a spiritual and collective response to this opposition. And it's not to quit. So we're talking about mission a lot. You're going to hear that word a lot. And essentially, what I want to do is remind you of Jesus' words. When we talk about mission, it's like, well, what really is that? Is it to open the, the, the most number of soup kitchens? Is it to start a school? Like, what is the mission? Jesus' words that he left with the disciples were to disciple the nations to be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's God's mission. That the nations would become obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, 30, 40, 50 years ago, churches in Canada and the U.S. especially we used to think of missions as a department of our budget that we would send to missionaries who would go to Nepal or India or China, right? We would have a missions department because we would say, well, the nations need to be discipled. Did you know that today China sends as many missionaries to the West as we do to China? Why? Because China, with the vibrancy of the Christian church there, looks at the West, churches like you and I in Canada and the United States, and they say, and in Europe, and they say, there's a dying church. We need to send missionaries. We need to disciple those nations to obedience to Christ. And so that's the reality that we live in now. And friends, you and I, this church is called to disciple the nations where we are as well. We, we cannot live in Smith Falls and say, well, the, this has already been evangelized. Why? Because there was a, there's been churches here for 150 years? Do you look at a town and see an evangelized, Christianized nation? Everyone is up in arms this week because of New York State signing in the despicable and frankly satanic legalization of abortion up to the date of delivery. Matt Walsh has done a fantastic job. Look up Matt Walsh, New York State abortion law. He has written brilliantly on this subject in the last week but it's it's 
it's traumatizing for the church to look at this. It's traumatizing with a Christian worldview to say, how can leaders approve of this stuff? Did you know that in Canada that has already been legal for decades? There's no abortion law in Canada. So, so we get so offended and we get so you know, riled up when we see the effects of sin in other places and we realize this is happening on our turf. Canada needs to be evangelized and discipled to obedience to Jesus Christ. And we can't take on all of Canada, but we're not called to. We're called to Smith Falls. And so as we think on these things, many of you live in and around Smith Falls. And this church, we pray, will become a model for Christian ministry and evangelization in Smith Falls. And so fulfilling the Great Commission, and, and these apostles go out in Jerusalem, and they begin to make disciples, and they begin to preach and they meet opposition. They were arrested, right? Peter and John were arrested in two weeks ago's passage. They were kept for one night. Then the Jews released them because they had no charge against them. And then they go out and they go back home to the others in the church. It says they're friends. And then they have this little prayer meeting. And that's what we're focused on this morning. So how does the church respond? Let's look at our text. Verse 23, when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. I love this. What happens when the church is oppressed? What happens? I'm going to say one more thing before I dive into this point. This whole outreach moment that included a sermon, it included a healing, it included facing the religious opposition of the day, the, the chief priests and their families, that... All of this happened not because a church committee got together and said, we need an outreach to the Jews. We need to go up to the temple and stage an evangelism. We need to hand out tracts. This all happened because Peter and John loved the Lord and they were going up to the temple to pray. And so I want to stress that over and over again, over and over again, over and over and over again. You're not going to see Evergreen Chapel stage a lot of collectively organized evangelism efforts. We're going to do things as a church to serve and bless Smith Falls. But essentially, Peter and John are effective because they're just living for Christ in their context. They're being faithful. They're just responding to what God puts in front of them. And very often, that's far more effective than us trying to strategize because God has given you special relationships that I don't know about. God has given you special opportunities that I can't possibly understand the nuances therein. But you do. You know your peers, you know your colleagues, you know your family members. And so God has called you to minister specifically where the elders at Evergreen just don't know, and that's okay. And so that's a point I wanted to make, so let's go on. So what happens when they're opposed? Peter and John are released, they go back home to their friends. I love how it calls them friends. It doesn't say they go back to their brothers and sisters in Christ, which they are, but they're friends. There's a camaraderie, there's a friendship in their church. They just love each other. They want to go tell their friends. So what's the first thing they do? They come together. They come together. So this was an activity of the apostles, right? Peter and John. So when they're opposed, they don't go say, oh, Peter and John, we need to go pray together. Just us. Just the important people that, you know, this happened to. We need to have a special elders meeting because this was an apostles, you know, ministry outreach. They just go back to their friends and they report. They come together. Is there's a church-wide response. There's a collectiveness that goes on. They don't keep it to themselves. 
These people share a common vision for God's glory in Jerusalem as obedience to Jesus Christ. The whole church shares this burden together. This isn't special work for the leadership. This isn't just a special prayer meeting just for leaders. This is the church. And likewise, as we live in the context to which we're called, the same thing is true of you. Do you belong, do you belong to this church? Are you struggling with your witness to your friends? Or are you struggling with some aspect of your faith that you sense opposition in, in your workplace or your school? Don't do it alone. Tell your friends. Tell your friends about how God is being opposed in your context. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't think, well, this is just, you know, this is not important. Come together. Be together. That's why we're a church family. So they don't think of this as specific to, you know, just John or just Peter. But they come together and they, they share in their response. This is how the church lives and operates and I love, again, that they use the word friends. It's an amazing designation for kingdom co-workers. We're friends. We're friends, right? We're friends as we serve Christ together. Something else we need to recognize is that when we labor for Christ, when we work for him, especially in the world, outside of the church context, it doesn't necessarily always fill us with butterflies or feelings of fulfillment. We give a false message when we say, well, God's finally going to give you purpose and you're finally going to feel good about your life. In, in one sense, that's absolutely true. God is going to give you ultimate reality, ultimate purpose, ultimate fulfillment. But when you work for him, it's not always going to feel like that. For Peter and John here, it meant going to jail and being hauled before the authorities of the town and humiliated and questioned like they were suspects and criminals. Working for Christ is not getting to be valedictorian or getting to be the parade master, the drill master, or, or the position of honor. It's very often just a call to be faithful and a call to suffer. That's outside the church. Very often, the same reality happens on the inside of the church. When you sign up for kids' ministry, it does not, it's not going to launch you on a career of, of writing self-help books because you've discovered the secret. It's going to be hard. It's going to be exhausting. It's going to be discouraging. I was very discouraged leaving my house this morning. I won't tell you the whole story, but it involves a hatchback trunk that wouldn't close because of the cold, loading the kids in and out of the vehicle twice, cleaning both vehicles off, but only driving one to church, and my whole family being sick. Serving the Lord does not always, well, it's just, God just clears the way and we just walk through and it's just a, just a feeling of euphoria all the time. It's not. It's a struggle. But the question is, is, is the struggle worth it? Is God behind it? And the best part is that we share in this ministry together. I know it wasn't easy for any of you to get to church this morning, but there are over 20 of you here this morning to pray together that God would be among his church, that he would be working in Smith's Falls. 20 of you brushed your cars off that extra bit to get here for prayer. And the fact that you're here this morning, you're here to minister to others, to sit beside your brothers and sisters, to share coffee after. You're here because you know that God is in it. And that's what makes the struggle worthwhile. Now here I am comparing brushing snow off and car seats and frozen hatchbacks to being put in jail. I don't mean to equate those things. But the reality is that even in our day-to-day -day lives, it doesn't feel good all the time. 
But that's not how they judge it. That's not how they respond. That's not how they evaluate the work that Christ has given them to do. They do it first as a community. What do they do next? They pray. They reported what the chief priests and elders had said. And when they heard it, they did what? They lifted their voices together to God. They prayed. This is why our church is dedicated to prayer. This is why Kevin and Carol Shaw have a prayer meeting at their house every single Sunday because will God's kingdom go forth in the power that we hope it will in Smith Falls, through Evergreen Chapel, through your lives without prayer? I don't believe so. I think we might be able to gather a crowd. I think we might be able to pay the bills and maybe even pay me a salary. Is that the goal of the church? Is that the end game to make sure that you can pay a full-time pastor and rent a nice building? Once you get to that, is the work of the church done? No. Without prayer, that will be the end totality of Evergreen Chapel. We meet in a nice theater and we can pay our pastor. What a small vision of the kingdom of God that is. And so being dissatisfied with that, we ought to continue to pray together. Our prayers don't have to be poetic. They don't have to be long. They don't have to be made with tears even. But they have to be made. God needs to be called and invited to work. He responds to desperate people. He responds to desperate people. And so the church must pray. Mission is meaningless without prayer. Mission is meaningless without prayer. When we say we want to you know, evangelize Smith Falls or bless the community or win the lost, how will that happen without prayer? Mission is a God-ordained and a God-orchestrated activity. It's not a human activity. Did you notice that? When they come together and they meet opposition, they don't start, they don't go back and say like, well, what can we do better next time? Or, They just start praying because it's a task that belongs to God in the first place. Prayer also positions us where we need to be, which is a secondary and helpless without his work. Again, many churches can draw a crowd, fill a building, pay the bills, do lots of exciting things with their money. But can they change human hearts? Can they see the lost saved? Can they see families truly rebuilt through regeneration and filling of the Holy Spirit? Can the church do any of that without God's power? No. And sometimes the the false idea of success is what we chase. We chase meeting the budget line or we chase making sure that certain positions are filled. When we pray though, we ask God to do what none of our budget items can do which is to change the human heart, to bring the nations to obedience to Christ. And by the way, that includes you and me individually. We need to be discipled. We need to be brought in submission to Christ more deeply. Most of us are already Christians here. Does that mean that our path of discipleship is finished? That we're fully submitted to Christ? That we've been brought under his rule and reign? I mean, as we sing that song, build your kingdom here, we're not just talking about out there. We're talking about in our own families, in our own habits, in our own decisions, in our own marriages, that Christ would continue to have greater dominion 
in our lives, that he would be made more of and that he would be submitted to to a greater degree. And so prayer reminds us that we're helpless to accomplish that. That's why we need to pray. We don't just need to pray, you know, thinking like, well, this is an important activity for some arbitrary reason. It's because it reminds us that there is someone greater who can do the things that we're asking to do. I love this, that they pray according to the truth of Scripture. They pray according to true and right doctrine. Listen to how they address God. They lifted their voices together to God. They don't just start rambling, but they address Him as sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm chapter 2. Their prayer is steeped in scriptural understanding. Now these were Jews by culture, by their background. Um, you know, very often you'll, somebody will come to Christ and they have no background in the Lord and they are not able to utter prayers that are steeped in Old Testament doctrine. That's okay. We don't expect people with no background in the Lord to, to need to pray specifically to be so um, articulate and so um, accurate. God hears the prayers of the simplest child and the most schooled philosopher. So this is not me saying your prayer needs to be complex and, and, and multidimensional, and, but they knew it. They knew the God that they were praying to. And so they lead this prayer out of the fruit of their knowledge of him. And so if you don't know the Psalms off by heart, if you don't know how to pray according to scripture, don't not pray, please. Pray God hears you. Pray out loud. Very often people are shy to pray in a group like, oh, I could never pray like, you know, Bob. I could never pray like Blair. I can never pray like Karen. They, you know, they... Dustin and his and all his rich, you know, names of Christ, and I can never pray like that. Doesn't matter. You pray. You pray from your heart. You pray from your desire to see the Lord work. Uh, but these apostles, steeped in the Scripture, they address God as Sovereign Lord, and and they specifically speak to His role as Creator. I mean, doesn't that seem a little bit random? You know, creator who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that fills them. What does creation have to do with this? They're praying to a God who not only is sovereign in his current reign, but who is the creator. And so I think what they're saying that a God who did not create is not a God who's in control. A God who did not create is not a God who's in control. And so they remind each other and themselves of God's role in creation. That the things that we are praying, and we need to remind ourselves of this, that you know, we pray and we think, oh, God would never do that. Do you realize that the rock that you are standing on was formed by the word of his mouth? How hard is it for God to change the human heart? He created it. You know, when, when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and the waves were roaring and they thought they were going to die. They, they, were on the, they were on the Sea of Galilee, which is like the size of Bass Lake. Like they were so scared, they thought they were going to die and, and Christ calms the waves and they say, surely this was the Son of God. This is God himself because he who has control over creation is truly God. 
And very often, Jesus, when he did physical miracles, he just did that to prove that he had control over the, and, and authority over the human heart. Or when the lame man came through the roof and he said, get up and walk. Oh, I'm sorry, he said, you can forgive sins. And they said, oh, you, you can't do that. That's blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. And he said, really? Well, you know, what would make you recognize that I was God? And he says to him, stand up and walk so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive. I say to this man, get up and walk. Mastery over creation is sovereignty over the spiritual realm. He who created the earth has sovereignty on the earth. That's what the apostles are saying, and they point to creation as a reminder that God is in control. Without acknowledging that God is in control, I think endurance is impossible, especially in mission. Without acknowledging that God is sovereign over salvation, we go crazy pretty quick. A lot of people think that sovereignty is sort of this idea that, well, if only God can change a human heart, then why do I bother doing missions? Why do I bother evangelizing? Because the fact that God is sovereign over creation means that those that he wants to save, he will save. It's the reason we do missions. It's the reason why we evangelize. Because if, if the human heart is free to resist God, then why do we evangelize? Because then it comes down to how well we can convince them. The apostles are saying, they're not saying, oh God, this is a real tricky one. This is a real tricky one because these guys are really, they're really resisting you. And, and so we need, we need a better strategy for evangelizing these people. I mean, like, God, you know, pray for us. Pray for us, God, because it, it, the mission comes down to us, but instead they're recognizing God is sovereign. And then they quote Psalm chapter 2. Before I get into Psalm 2, I just I want to sum that up by saying the mind informs the mouth. The mind informs the mouth. In your spiritual life, in your prayer life, in your heart for evangelism, if, when you pray for the lost, when you pray for your family members, when you pray for your wife, your children, your husband, the mind informs the mouth. So trust what you read in scriptures. Trust what you understand about God and then pray according to that. Don't let your feelings rule your mind. Let your mind rule your mouth and your heart and pray according to that which you know to be true. So they pray according to God's sovereignty. And then they quote Psalm chapter 2. Now there's a historic reality here. Psalm chapter 2 records the opposition of nations who oppose God's anointed one. Who is God's anointed one but Jesus Christ? And so with the hindsight that the apostles have, they look back on Psalm chapter 2 and they say, this is about Jesus. So they quote Psalm chapter 2, recognizing that this is speaking of the reality that Jerusalem, the nations have stood against. And remember, it wasn't just Israel, but it was Rome as well. It was the Jews with the Gentiles who opposed Jesus Christ. Also interestingly about this psalm, why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Though written far before Jesus Christ, it's written in the past tense. This psalm is explicitly speaking of the opposition to Jesus Christ. 
Because when Psalm chapter 2 was written, there was not the historic reality of God's anointed Christ having been opposed. But it's written so that it would be most accurately applied by those who lived after Christ. Why did the nations rage? Why did the Gentiles set themselves against the Lord and his anointed? Looking back, they can say this psalm speaks prophetically. It speaks to the reality that was going to take place. How does a sovereign God respond to opposition? This is not found right in the, uh, right in the part that they quote, but, I, but whenever you see Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, it's, it's important to gain an understanding of the full quoted area because it informs how those people were thinking when they quoted it. So you could easily look at that and say, why did the Gentiles rage? Why did they plot in vain? And you could be quoting that thinking they were cowering and terrified because there was such great opposition. God, your plan is failing because everyone's opposing you. But in their mind, when they're quoting this, they know the whole passage. Um, Psalm 2 verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Hmm. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. So even as the nations oppose Jesus Christ, God says to his anointed, to his son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. I will make them servant to you. I will make them your inheritance. I will make them belong to you. So how's that opposition going for the nations? He who sits in the heavens laughs. And I will make the ends of the earth your possession. There is no rebellion that will stand against Jesus Christ. There is no rebellion that will stand. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's a psalm of the lordship of Christ and of his unending lordship, of his unending kingdom and kingship. There is no opposition that will find success against Christ. So when the apostles are quoting this, they're not saying, God, it's out of control, they're against you. They're saying, I can't believe they are setting themselves up against you, God. There's a warning in there to the nations. Be wise, O kings. How do we think of rulers? How do we think of our people? Do we warn? Do we pray for those in charge of our nation and our nations around us. Be warned, O kings. Be wise. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun lest he be angry. Rebellion against Christ is not wise. It is not sustainable. It will come to an end. So that's the historic reality. And even as these authorities are scoffing at the reality of Christ, I mean, they think that he was just a person that they put to death and now he's gone. As they scoff in his reality or in his authority, God is not passive or indifferent. 
All governing authorities must submit to the reign of Christ. Friends, this is something that we need to embrace as the church. We so often think that there are, there, there's multiple realms to Christianity. Like the church is God's place. It's like where God's in charge. And then the world is just like the secular area where it's like, well, we can't really, we can't get too mad at them, you know, because the Bible speaks that all civic authority must come under Jesus Christ. Kings and rulers and magistrates and prime ministers and presidents are responsible to God for how they lead. They must come under submission to him. And so I'm not advocating that somebody anoint a pastor, the king. That's not what I'm saying. Separation of church and state is great. But we do have a prophetic witness to the world that it's not okay. There's, there's not, it's not okay for a secular realm to engage in stealing and murder and dishonesty as they conduct their affairs. It's wicked. And the church has a prophetic role to warn kings and rulers and town counselors and mayors, be wise, come to Christ, rule well. There are not two different realms. The church is already under the authority of God and the rest of the world is gradually being made in submission to Christ. And so it is our goal and our task to call the world, call all peoples to Jesus Christ. I think also generally we need to recognize that as the apostles are ministering, there's a historic element to this, Psalm chapter 2, but there's also a general principle that ministry is kind of always going to look like this. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other from life to life. And so even as you minister and as you speak truthfully, there are two types of people who will respond to your witness. To some, you will be the aroma of life. To some, you'll be the aroma of death and judgment. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Not everyone will turn to Christ, but many will. You will be the aroma of life to God among those who are being saved. I think where these apostles are and where we are is truly the meeting place between heaven and earth. There is a God who is redeeming through his son and there is man who resists because of pride, and we stand in the middle. We stand between God and the world in very many respects in a very real sense because we bear and we carry the name of Christ. I want to ask you again, do you, <laughs> do you feel unworthy or unqualified to think about having a godly response to opposition? You think, well, no one's ever going to oppose me because I'm, remember John and Peter they were just going to worship that day. They did not plan any of this. Go back and listen to that message again and, 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 and how God will use those who are simply available, who are filled with his spirit, who love him, who are just living for him. He will do great things through those people. And so this is all just a result of God using his servants who love him. Uh, so the first thing they do is they come together, they pray according to the truth, they recognize the reality of Scripture, 
They pray together. There's a community element. Number two, uh, seek God's pleasure, pleasure and power in mission. So how do you respond to opposition? Seek God. Seek God and his pleasure and power in mission. So they say to God, for truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant in Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And so even though that psalm, remember that Old Testament passage, it ends with judgment, right? You will break them to pieces. You will crush them. That's the ultimate reality for those who resist Jesus Christ. Horrible judgment. But that's not what the disciples pray for. They don't pray that God will come down and destroy and pulverize the Jewish leaders. Even though they look at scripture and they say, that's who this is about. It's about these guys. So God, carry out your mission and destroy them. They don't. They don't ask for God to crush the opposition but they ask for his help that they might continue to speak. They say, God, look upon their threats. Remember, these are rulers. I mean, they had the authority to imprison John and Peter. And they charged them. They, sang, they said, do not speak this anymore. And they just say, God, can you just look at their threats? Can you just, can you just acknowledge those threats and, and grant us that we would obey you to continue to speak? Civic authority where it denies God's lordship must not be obeyed. Let me say that again. Civic authority where it denies the lordship of Christ must not be obeyed. Yeah, this is the civic authority commanding them not to speak anymore. If I received a bylaw or you in Smith Falls that said you are now no longer allowed to preach God's word, what should I do? Should I say, well, that's great. I'm a carpenter. I can go back to doing that. Or shall I obey God and continue to preach his word? The, the command to children to obey your parents. Children, obey your parents as unto the Lord. Submit to your parents insofar as what they are asking you to do is honoring to Christ. Our ultimate authority is God himself. And so they ask that they would continue to speak. Their mission is the same as God's mission. Habakkuk 2.14, one of my favorite Bible passages the whole earth will be covered in the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That's the mission of God, that his knowledge is going to spread and cover the whole earth. So the disciples are like, Lord, help us continue to do that. Their desire is for salvation, but their duty is for mission. We do not save. Let me remind you of that again. We do not save. Their desire is for salvation, of course. That's why we do mission. That's why we evangelize. That's why we serve. But their duty is the mission. They cannot control the fruit of the mission. They cannot control how men and women respond. They, their prayer is that they would continue to speak. Now, you should pray for the salvation of your friends and lo loved ones and lost colleagues or absolutely pray for their salvation but recognize that god uses ordinary means and he's given us the ordinary means and left the supernatural to him even so look at scripture look upon your threats and grant that we would continue to speak your word with all boldness verse 30 while you stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders that's amazing 
They don't say, God, give us greater power to do more miracles. Then people will believe. They They say, God, grant us boldness as we speak while you stretch out your hand to do the impossible. I love that. Because I am not a very charismatic, flashy, high-function person. It would terrify me if the exhortation was to pray for greater flashiness as a minister of the gospel. I would say, I'm disqualified. I'm not flashy enough. I do not, I do not possess enough faith. But even so, they ask for boldness while God does the miraculous. Now, they did perform signs. Peter and John just healed a guy. That's how this whole thing got started, was them performing a miracle. But even so, they they don't even think in those categories. They say, as you perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, even so, they believe that it is Christ performing the miraculous by God's selection, by God's sovereignty. And they just ask to speak. I love this too. Nor do they discuss what needs to be changed. When there's opposition, isn't it so, don't you, I get so tired of hearing, well, you know why the world won't listen to us? It's because our sexual ethic is medieval. You know why the world won't listen to us? It's because you have this archaic view of men and women. You know why the world won't listen to you, church? They don't sit around saying, well, what, what do we need to change about the message? Obviously, that struck a nerve with them. So let's just come at it in a different angle. I think the whole lordship of Christ thing just kind of struck a nerve. So let's go at it a little different. Let's speak of Christ as like the lowly servant. I think that'll, they'll respond a little bit better to that. Or maybe it was the whole part where he convicted them of their sin. I think that's what got them really heated under the collar. We talked about how they crucified Christ and that's where the whole evangelism thing went off the rails for us, guys. So new approach. They don't do any of that. Grant now that your servants continue to speak your word with all boldness. There is nothing defective about the ministry of the gospel. There is nothing defective about the word of salvation. There's nothing defective about God's word to humanity. There's nothing defective about the ministry and commands of Christ. There is nothing defective in what God has given us to say. Remember, we're messengers. We are messengers. We're given a message. We have no authority to change the message and we have no need to. We don't determine why somebody won't believe and then try to shape and and, and curtail the gospel in a way that we think that they'll respond to. Peter was clear and direct. He said, let it be known to all of you and the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by him this man is standing before you well. This is Jesus, the stone that was rejected. It has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For by no other name given under heaven can man be saved. Peter was clear and direct. This is the gospel message. If you want to know God, you must come to Christ. He's not ashamed of that. And so they ask specifically for boldness. Uh, Now, the room shakes at the end of this. The Holy Spirit comes and literally rattles the room. Uh, But that's not what they were praying for. They were praying that God would allow them to continue in boldness. Jonah 
2.9 is another great verse that reminds us of this whole prospect. Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. We just continue. We just continue to speak while God performs the miraculous. He saves men and women. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah said. And so God affirms their prayer and their request, and, and he attends. He literally sends an attendant manifestation of the Spirit, and he shakes the room. They were filled with the Spirit, and the room shakes. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? I think that in their prayer for boldness, God sends his approval. He sends his affirmation. He sends his attendants to say, I am with you. You must continue in boldness. God is saying, I am not leaving this mission because it got tough. I'm not going to bail on you. Here is a reminder. Remember, the apostles were told to wait until the Spirit came before they started doing anything. And so they recognize once again, it is the Spirit of God who is going to bring about salvation in this city. Ministry is not a right. It's not a hobby to be chosen or forgotten. The ongoing mission of the church is a divinely empowered calling on God's people and must be carried out in the power and approval of God. And so the last part is to press on. Just to press on. They just want to keep going. That's how the church responds to opposition. To press on. So when God sends his spirit, what he's telling them is, yes, I have seen their threats. We saw in Psalm chapter 2 that God sees the threat and the opposition of the nations and he laughs. He says, I see their threat. I see how bad it is. I see how hard it's going to be to win Smith's Falls. I see how hard against the gospel they are. I see it. But it doesn't mean that I'm bailing on the mission, says God. What did it take to save you when you got saved? Some of you were saved when you were little kids and you think, well, not much. It was like kind of somebody offered me a lollipop and I came to Christ. Some of you have testimonies that are a little bit different where, where God won you out of rebellion. God won you when you did not deserve it. God won you when you were not looking for him. Now that's true of all of us, whether we were that little lollipop kid or whether we were you know, doing drugs in college. But what did it take to save you? God seeks and saves the lost. He is the one who goes after the lost, not us. I love that when God tells them to press on and he attends to them in power, the means does not change. It's so basic. It's so ordinary in the eyes of the world that they would continue to speak, that they would just continue to use men and women who have failures and who have character issues, just continue to speak, just preach, just go, just say, just be, just do. Just be a human being in the world and be faithful to God. Paul says to Timothy in one of his pastoral books, what you have heard from me, pass on to faithful men. Just pass it on. Just teach others. So the mission has been defined, the power has been given, and we have been chosen. So be faithful to God, be among his people, be near the lost, and do it all, recognizing that Christ 
not man is king. And, and I think that is where this comes down to, is when opposition comes, our tendency is to say, well, this is pretty significant. This is a pretty big deal. How are we going to come up against this? We need to be reminded that Christ is king. 